Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you're in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply for it would be fantastic to have you alongside us on the show. Um, I'm pleased to say that joining us on the programme today on what is a warm but wet morning here in the capital is Danny Sims. Danny is the chairman of DJS Research, a UK-based full-service market research agency which specialises in both consumer and B2B research surveying. Uh, Danny, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us. No problem at all, Scott. Yeah, real pleasure having you. Not the nicest day for it, but fortunately we're inside and away from the uh, the rain. Um, I think... It would be remiss of me if we didn't start by addressing the elephant in the room, as I like to call it. And that's the fact that even though we're in a position now where social restrictions have gone in England around the COVID pandemic for the time being, um, we're still somewhat within the grip of the health crisis. And that's now been the case for the best part of 16 months since it first took a hold of our daily lives way back in March 2020. Um, So looking back that far, um, to what extent do you think all of this has affected you and your business overall? Yeah, so uh, obviously it's been a, a bit of a whirlwind. Um, things are starting to settle down now, thank goodness. But I can remember when it first um, started, we were in the office um, in, in Stockport and um, I literally had to walk around the office. I think it was about 12, 1 o'clock. I had to walk around the office and, and send people home because um, of, of the cases were getting high and there was, uh, there was talk of maybe someone having it in our office. So I had to, I had to send everyone uh, home. And it, it was uh, it was really, really strange. And from that point onwards, we've been, um, we've been working from home. Um, and luckily, we, we had a lot of things in place in terms of working from home measures for staff and... Uh, Luckily, we were able to switch to working from home pretty pretty seamlessly. Um, but so that was that was the start of it, and then um, it's been a it's been a big journey since then, really. Yeah, I can certainly imagine so. And um, I suppose when it came to sort of adapting to sort of the remote working side of things, even though it was kind of a relatively seamless transition, as you said there, um, did it sort of prompt a kind of change almost in leadership style for yourself when it came to sort of leading your sort of colleagues and your team from a distance? Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely has. Um, it, 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 you know, it has worked for us and it, it made us think about the... Um, the, the office environment and um, it, it definitely has worked but we have had to make some, a lot of changes and I think perhaps the biggest one for me and the key one and the key one that we're going to definitely continue with, with as a business is better communications um, every two weeks I, throughout the whole um, pandemic I've been doing um, basically update emails to, to the staff um, just 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 communicate with everything, and, and those and those uh, and those emails have gone down really well for staff. Um, just keeping them informed, keeping them informed of our thinking, keeping them informed of you know what the board is discussing. And so yeah, communication has been the big one from myself that that I've introduced. I mean, we were doing them before, but certainly more regular and more open and more transparent uh, communication has been key for us throughout. 
Yeah, and I think during this time as well, we've seen a lot of sort of heightened trust between business leaders and their colleagues, haven't we? Um, even though we've been working from afar, I think the fact that they've shown that they can go and be productive um, in sort of a remote working framework, it's shown that, you know, maybe the hesitancy that we had sort of pre-pandemic to go and let people work from home, that's now sort of falling by the wayside somewhat, isn't it? And the human connections between us, that trust to go and work, it's really heightened during this time, I think. Oh, 100%, 100%. And we were we were going down those lines. Um, let's say we had um, one uh, one day working from home uh, or staff were able to do that prior to the pandemic. Um, but, but now, obviously, everyone's working from home um, full time. They are going into the office if there's a real need. Uh, but you, you, you have to think, if you've got someone working for you, you know, why shouldn't you trust them? Why shouldn't you trust them to, to work from home, to work flexibly? I mean, it's not just working from home. Uh, we've, we've had to, you know, so a lot of our staff are parents and schooling and having to school the children at home. Um, as long as the job gets done, um, why shouldn't you do work from home and, and offering flexibility? Um, why would you have someone working for you you don't, um, you don't trust? Um, so... Definitely, I think, it, it, and I think that's um, one of one of the positive, good things that, have, that has come out of these new ways of working. And um, for us, we don't want to open up the office and and go back to the old ways. We want to embrace some of the um, some of the positive things that came out of this. Um, and you know, I think moving forward, you know, we do believe there is uh, there is still a need for uh, the office environment and mm. um, what that gives you. But certainly for us, we, we will be taking a hybrid approach uh, going forward. Yeah, certainly. I think it's got to be remembered, isn't it, that like just doing everything from home isn't a one size fits all approach because maybe some people don't quite have the accommodation or the living space exactly. to make that beneficial yeah. for the work life balance that we've heard about. And I think yeah. as well, um, that sort of work life balance, how that ties into mental health and well-being, just given sort of the sort of self-awareness that's come about from COVID, I think we've become almost more willing and open to talk about issues such as that. It was on the agenda before the pandemic, but it's really sort of thrust it um, into the uh, the limelight of the national discussion. Um, an aspect of that that I really wanted to talk about was um, the well-being of the business leader as well, because when you're sucked into survival mode, um, it's very easy as the one at the top to go sort of chasing after everybody else, making sure that they're in the right headspace, looking out for them. Um, but in that sort of frame of mind it's easy to kind of neglect number one I suppose isn't it and sort of not take that time out to sort of make sure that you're in that right headspace and you're recharging the batteries when you need to um so for business leaders that's an important element also to consider yeah definitely I've not, I've not really uh, it's an interesting question now and um it is as a, as a leader as a um of the company owner of the company um I often do think that that um Yes, there's not a lot of support and help for um, for us. I mean, my HR mm-hmm. person, um, she's very good. She's always checking uh, on myself or and saying, Danny, when are you going to take some holidays? So I know that she's kind of thinking of it. Um, but I guess the other, I, I've always, always, like, you know, here we're based up in the, the north, predominantly actually now with this remote work, and we've got remote workers all over the UK now. Um, but we're predominantly our offices are based in the north. Um, I think um, I've always tried to build a network of 
almost, you know, that they are competitors, I suppose, competitive market researcher agencies um, and MDs, but really actually in a lot of them, I've turned them into to friends and to contacts. So, so there is a lot of, um, I, I guess, meetings that I have with external uh, managing directors. And I guess that, that's quite a good um, outlet for myself to speak to those uh, people, to share ideas, thoughts. Um, yes, we are competitors, but, you know, for me, there's enough work out there for us and for all of us. And uh, having that network of people to to, 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 to run past ideas on and uh, to know that you're doing things, it's quite, a, you know, doing things right um, is quite a comforting. Um, so that helps me, I guess. Mm. Um, and just sort of like switching focus slightly to your line of work, actually, Danny, you're, of course, based in consumer and B2B uh, market research. And I suppose yeah. like sort of before restrictions started to be relaxed, I suppose both last year and also this year as well, um, there were some concerns that it would take some time for consumer confidence to return to sort of those in-person settings. So would people be flocking back to their local high streets in earnest? Would they be sort of engaging in sort of purchasing in person? And I think what we've seen is that you know that appetite is still there isn't it is that something that sort of you'd agree with from what you found yeah so you mean the appetite from consumer consumer spending and um the economy is that what you're thinking about yeah so going onto the high street going into shops going into physical settings and purchasing yeah yeah no no i mean that i think definitely i mean the feeling that we've got within within our industry i mean we uh, suddenly, when it first happened, we see a lot of our face-to-face work. It, 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 um, it pretty much stopped. So that's like you know, group discussions, face-to-face group discussions, and on-street interviewing. Uh, obviously, none of that could happen. So all of our work pretty much um, stopped. Um, but we were able to adjust, and we were able to adjust our methodologies and uh, to an online approach, digital approach. And certainly what we're seeing now is that, yeah, for those first six months, it was really hard to work. You know, we lost a lot of turnover, a lot of sales. Um, but now we've never been, we, we're going through an unprecedented time in terms of that well, we've always grown, but we are really, really busy now at the moment. And I think um, there's a new world out there now, and uh, we've got lots and lots of clients' inquiries um, approaching us um, to, to do market research because part of it, I guess, is, is, is finding out about this. Uh, new world so we're we're seeing it it's buoyant uh, really buoyant and mm. um I, I think that that bodes well it does yeah and um we've seen of course consumer spending online shooting up during the pandemic out of necessity because sort of businesses have had to close their physical premises um do you think yeah. that's also kind of a phenomenon that we're going to see sort of persisting over the uh, the next few months and years as well yeah i i i, I think so i mean we think so. We have conversations here, but we wonder whether it's just a boom and mm. you know, six months time is it going to be different? So I think it's um, it's going to be an interesting one, isn't it? And time will tell, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, we are in a little bit of a period of uncertainty, I guess. I mean, even though restrictions have sort of gone for the time being, we don't know whether they're going to make a comeback towards the autumn and the winter, what the situation is going to be like then. Um, but just yeah. sort of lastly, if we sort of could pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment and kind of look ahead the next uh, sort of 12 months. Um, for your business especially, Danny, yeah, what are your sort of priorities going to be and what are your hopes for sort of the next 12 months in terms of where you want to be by this time in 2022? 
Well, um, we've had a big change recently. So um, we've, um, my wife and I have recently sold to do a family-owned company. And on July the 1st, we've um, we sold the company to, to the employees. So now that we are, uh, we've moved from a family-owned company to an employee-owned company. Um, and this is really exciting for us. So we're now one of 500 companies um, to adopt this. So it's basically the same model as John Lewis. So the company is now owned by, well, the majority of the company is now owned by all of all of our staff, uh, and this is a really exciting time for us um, because um, I think it's going to be a family-owned company that is a, a good structure that has served as well. Um, but I think this this could be a step above again and a real differentiator in terms of the, the, certainly our staff. We're getting some really positive feedback about it from our staff and from our clients, and uh, saying what a fantastic thing to do. Um, so for us, to answer your question over the next year is really about embedding employee ownership and, um, and and what that means for staff and for our clients. And hopefully um, that will um, you know continue the pattern of um, helping our helping our growth basically and uh, and growing a, a growing a, a, a good positive company, uh, a, a, you know creating a great place to work, which is ultimately what we're trying to do. Yeah, certainly so. And hopefully, like say, that uh, transition um, into that sort of employee-owned um, um, kind of arrangement, I think that's going to be uh, fantastic going forward. I really, really hope that bears fruit for you. And um, yeah. over the next few months as well, as we sort of start to see how that takes effect and also what sort of general state uh, the economy is in and how the business is doing, um, I think it'd be great actually, Danny, to sort of just catch up on the state of affairs in seven or eight months and just see how things are coming along because I've really enjoyed having you on the programme today. It's been a real pleasure. No, thanks very much for having me, Scott. That's been really good. It has certainly. Um, we it's fantastic um, on the Leaders Council podcast to hear so many diverse perspectives on the uh, the pandemic, your story on finding your way through, also leadership as well, and the importance of that during these times of change. And uh, lastly, just before we do um, depart, Danny, please do as well take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on in the world because we're not quite out of the woods yet, but I'm confident that we're sort of heading into uh, less troubled waters. Let's say. Most definitely, and same to you as well, definitely, yeah. It was a pleasure to welcome Danny Sims, Chairman of DJS Research, onto today's programme, and I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Uh, joining us next on the programme will be Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett, who will be sharing his take on the events of the last 16 months with the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as his hopes for this period of recovery that we're hopefully venturing into now that restrictions have lifted. Um, that will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing 
staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that 
Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, mm -hmm. but actually I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country 
that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, 
experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.